Hello, everybody. My name is Michael Millerman. Millermanschool.com is where I offer courses on Plato, Aristotle, Heidegger, Leo Strauss, Alexander Dugan, Carl Schmidt, and others. We're on a live stream because I thought we'd continue going with Martin Heidegger's Basic Concepts book. Why not? I almost thought, eh, let's stop. We've done three hours already worth of reading and commentary, but let's keep going. So... This second division is called Guide Words for Reflection Upon Being. And what Heidegger does in this section is, if you can remember a little bit about what we talked about before in the previous live streams, when we say is, it seems like it's empty. Then at other times, it seems like it's full. But then it gets its richness from the things it combines. That's really what we talked about in the last uh, division, in the last section of this book. Here, he brings that together in a way. And I'll give you a sense of how he does it. Okay, without reading the whole thing just yet, you have phrases like the following. Being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus. Being is the most common and at the same time unique. Being is the most intelligible and at the same time a concealment. So we have these types of phrases now that bring together apparent opposites and we relate them both to being and it's kind of going to have like a maybe Zen koan-like character. It's going to get you reflect how can something be the emptiest and at the same time a surplus. And as Heidegger walks us through that, we're going to learn more about how he thinks about being and why he thinks it's important to us. So in a moment, without further ado, I barely got myself ready here, but without further ado, we will launch right into it. Hello, Charles and anybody else who's here. Thank you for being here. I hope you're all having a nice day. It's our first big snowstorm of December here in Montreal. Maybe it's nice where you are. Maybe not. Being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus. Adhering to what was said before, when we consider afresh the is as the connecting word in a proposition, we must already acknowledge two things. The is indicates an emptiness in which reflection finds no support, as we discussed. However, at the same time, the is divulges a wealth within which the being of beings pronounces itself, as we also saw. Let us think again, Heidegger writes about Goethe's verse, which in terms of content speaks only of mountain peaks and above and rest. Okay, you remember that? Above all, uh, above all peaks is rest. So if I say the dog is on the mat, we're talking about dog, mat. If I say above all peaks is rest. So I'm talking about mountain peaks above and rest. And yet the is names something that cannot be determined by what is named and nameable through this content. The is in that a phrase from Goethe above all uh, peaks is rest. Where does the is derive its substance from in that phrase? It's not the same as in the other cases, uh, as you may recall from the previous section. Thus precisely in the is a peculiar claim is spoken which flows from its own source and cannot be exhausted or drained by the naming of various beings. Therefore, the very slightness of the verse says much, indeed still more than an extended description. Let me just make a quick comment on that. It's pretty important. Heidegger says that in that passage by Goethe, the is says something, gives us something that is not derived from the other things in the sentence, from the other beings. So in that case, being, the is, it gives us something other than what it derives from 
beings, namely from the other words in a sentence. In the is, a surplus is put into words. If we replace the is with the, noun, with the name of the noun being, then if we consider what is said in its unity, we stand before the question, is being only the emptiest as measured against each being thus and thus determined? So you've got cups, cars, countries, men, women, birds, and flowers, all substances with some substantive content, and then you have this empty notion of being. Or is being a surplus for all beings, which leaves each being infinitely far behind? Is being just the empty connector, or is it more than the beings? Is it a surplus? Or, Heidegger continues, is being perhaps yet both, the emptiest as well as the surplus? Being would then be in its very essence its own opposite. We would then have to acknowledge something like a discord within being itself. Hmm, maybe that's the discord of, maybe that's the discord that's the father of all things. Maybe that's the discord that in Dugan we call machia, like no omachia. Okay, we would then have to acknowledge something like a discord within being, if it's simultaneously the emptiest and a surplus. If, however, this discordant character belongs to being itself and constitutes its essential character, then being cannot be split in the sense of a destruction of its essence. What is discordant, the being empty and being a surplus of being, must then be held together in the unity of an essence. The emptiness and fullness aren't two separate things. But we would be over hasty to speak directly about an essential discordance of being and to presume to decide about the essence of being solely on the grounds of the double character of the is, that it announces itself at once as emptiness and surplus. Above all, we resist the temptation to take this emerging discordance within being as the occasion for a dialectical accounting of being. So he's not going to do a Hegelian dialectic that moves from nothing to being in a development that passes through all becoming, okay? Not a dialectical account of being, because that would, as Heidegger continues here, choke off all reflection. We'd be putting ourselves into a movement that moves with or without us. And then you wouldn't be able to reflect. We want, Heidegger says, at first only to carry out a reflection, and so to clarify our relation to the being of beings. Once again, not just our conception of, it's not just the mental affair, our relation to. We stand in the midst of beings. We stand in the midst of the distinction between being and beings. We concern ourselves with this clarification of our relation to the being of beings in order first to come into position to perceive with a certain clarity the claim of that saying written here in Greek, which we've seen Heidegger tracing throughout the uh, throughout the lecture so far. You see it right, uh, right there. Meleta to pan. Okay, take into care to pan. Like pan, like panopticon, right? All, the all, the beings as a whole. This is the phrase that Heidegger has had us reflecting on since the start here because he believes that if we reflect on this patiently and uh, relentlessly, it can move us to wards the Greek inception of our history. From the just completed reflection, however, Heidegger continues, we first discern this about being. Being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus out of which all beings, those that are familiar and experienced, as well as those unfamiliar and yet to be experienced, are granted their respective modes of being. So in a moment, we're going to go to the next one here, which is being is 
the most common and at the same time the most unique but let me just pause hello to everybody who's here appreciate you spending your time together with me this morning as we continue our uh, journey through Martin Heidegger's basic concepts lecture sort of committed to it now so we might as well just uh, keep going uh, feel free to um, be active in the chat if you'd like to be in the comments if you'd like to be I'm obligated to ask you to like and subscribe and share and all of that to the channel so that I can continue to put out videos like this do this kind of live public uh, tutoring or reading an exposition and uh if you don't know, I run an online school that sells courses on political philosophy, including Heidegger, Strauss, Plato, and others, including Aristotle, okay, millermanschool.com. Let's go further. Being is the most common and at the same time unique. So empty and full, most common and unique. If we follow this indication of being in all beings, we immediately find that being is encountered in every being uniformly and without difference. Okay, look around you. There's my cup, there's my computer, there's my monitor, there's my camera. This is, that is, the other thing is, and the fourth thing is. They're all in being, and somehow that's like added to them in common. That's the common characteristic. What's not common, their shape, their weight, their function. What is common, that they exist. So being is common to all beings, and thus the most common, so it seems. The most common is without every distinction. As Heidegger himself here continues, the stone is, the tree is, the animal is, the man is, the world is, and God is. Okay, in that sentence, he's got world in quotation marks, the world is, and then the God, and God is, he's got is in quotation marks. Against this thoroughly uniform is, by the way, just so you know, if you're watching, whenever I do this, that's because Heidegger has put a word in quotation marks, and I don't always want to say that, so I'll just show it like that, Okay. Um, against this thoroughly uniform is, and in contrast to this uniformity and leveling of being, many levels and ranks show themselves within beings, which themselves allow for the most diverse arrangements. So there apparently is no rank in being, but there is rank in beings. We can progress from the lifeless, from dust and sand and the motionlessness of stone, to the living of plants and animals, beyond this to free men, and yet beyond this to demigods and gods have a rank among beings the lifeless the barely living the living you know the human the superhuman we also could reverse the order of rank among beings and declare what one ordinarily calls spirit and the spiritual to be only a discharge of electrical phenomena and an excretion of materials whose composition to be sure Chemistry has not yet discovered, but will discover one day. So you take the rank in beings, low to high, you reduce the high to the low. Everything we call spiritual is really just chemical. Or we can appoint those beings that we call living to the highest rank and hold life to be the actual and figure everything material into it and incorporate into it the spiritual as well, solely as a tool for life. So here again, given the rank among beings... One part of the rank is life or the living, and you can elevate the characteristic of living to be what determines actuality. I repeat here, we can appoint those beings that we call living to the highest rank and hold life to be the actual. Nevertheless, being is each time thoroughly common in all beings and thus the most common. 
At the same time, however, a cursory reflection just as soon encounters the opposite of this characterization of being. So what was the first characterization? Being is common in a flat and universal way. There's no difference between the way a wolf is, a sheep is, a star is, and the earth is. They are different. There's a rank among beings, but there's no rank among being. It's flat and common. However, we have, through a cursory reflection, the opposite of this characterization of being. So let's see that. However one being might surpass another, as a being, it remains equal to the other. Hence, it has in the other its own equivalent. So against the idea of a rank, stone, plant, ape, man, god, that seems like a differentiation. Well, in as much as they're all beings, they are equal. Every being has in every being, insofar as it is a being, it's equal. The tree in front of the house is a different being than the house, but a being, nevertheless. The house is other than a man, but a being. All beings are thrown into the manifoldness of respective beings, separated from one another and dispersed into a vast multiplicity. In experiencing beings, we pass through many kinds of things, and yet everywhere and without exception, beings find in each being their equal. You get that idea? Here's the political equivalent. One man, one vote. Are you a peasant? Doesn't matter. Are you a cake? Doesn't matter. Did you build a million dollar company? Doesn't matter. Did you, you know, whatever. In front of the law, you're a single citizen with a single vote. So all beings, regardless of their rank, before the bar of existence, you're one, you're just a being. Okay, this is the flip part of what Heidegger is now getting us to consider. In experiencing beings, we pass through many kinds of things, and yet everywhere and without exception, beings find in each being their equal. That's on the side of beings. How does it stand, however, with being? Remembering the difference between the two. Being has its equal nowhere and no how. Being is, over and against all beings, unique. So I say, here I have a cup, cup of coffee, here I have a pen, they're both beings, and in that sense, one of them is not unique from the perspective of being a being. It's in the world with other beings. There's a commonality of beings. But being as such has no second, has no other. I mean, it has no, you know, it's unique. So we went from seeing it as, um, we went from seeing it as common now to seeing it as Unique. To repeat, being has its equal nowhere and no how. Being is over and against all beings unique. Nothing corresponds to being. Being is not given a second time. There are certainly different modes of being, but precisely of being, which is never respectively this and that, and thus constantly a plurality like beings. The uniqueness of being, remember, he's getting us to think through. We're not getting answers here. We're seeing, whoa, okay, how can it be? Empty and full, common and unique. We're gradually peeling back some layers here in the perplexity of being. However, being is never merely what is equivalent in the manifold beings, stone, plant, animal, man, God. For to be what is equivalent, it would have to be multiple. Being, by contrast, is everywhere the same, namely itself. To be the same, only uniqueness is needed. As the same and unique, being is, of course, forever different in and from itself, but what is differentiated is not different in the sense that being could be being twice over and repeatedly. It's like there's 
one God. I mean, I shouldn't slip into the theological here, but just to help you kind of get the point, right? Which uh, I see in the chat, some where it's clicking for some people, which is great. One unique being. Uh, as the same and unique being is, of course, okay, I read that. Being is distinguished by uniqueness in a unique way, incomparable with any other distinction. Being in its uniqueness, and in addition to this, beings in their multiplicity. Many beings, unique being. Um, is there not a third thing, Heidegger now asks, and maybe you yourselves are already thinking this. Uh, see whether you can anticipate here what he's saying. So we had the multiplicity of beings, we have the uniqueness of being. Any hunch about what the third thing might be that he has in mind here? Is there not a third thing which we must distinguish in addition to being and beings? The nothing. One could cut off this question with the observation that the nothing precisely is not, and therefore there's no sense or reason to speak of a third thing here. Let me just pause. Those of you who have read some Plato, you may know that this question of the being of the nothing or if you have kids, you may know that this question, is nothing something? How can nothing be something if it's nothing? This question of the ontological status of the nothing, of nothing, of negation, or of absence, it's a theme in uh, Plato, for example, in the sophist which Heidegger lectured on and which he quotes at the start of being in time. So it's not a trivial matter. Uh, one could cut off this question of the nothing with the observation that the nothing precisely is not, and therefore there's no sense or reason to speak of a third thing here. It is indeed correct that the nothing is not a being and can never and nowhere be made into a being, for we think the nothing as the negation of beings purely and simply. But the question remains whether the nothing itself consists in the negation of beings or whether the negation of beings is simply a representation of nothing, which the nothing requires of us when we set out to think it. Did you get that point? Nothing is not a thing. It's not one of the beings. It's not among the countable entities. You're rejecting all of the beings. You get to nothing. But here's a question. Did you get to nothing by rejecting all of the beings? Or... Is it only by virtue of nothing that you can reject all of the beings? It's kind of like what comes first here, the cart or the horse, the act of negation or the being of the nothing, so to speak. Well, I'm not saying it's easy, okay, but I'm trying to explain to you what Heidegger's writing. The nothing is certainly no being, but nevertheless, there is given, eskibbed the nothing. We say here there is given the nothing, but we cannot at present determine more closely who or what gives the nothing. So everybody is has a direct experience of the nothing, of, the, of rejection of entities, of total negation. Why should that be? Where does that come from? We cannot at present determine more closely who or what gives the nothing. We can also say the nothing presences in order to indicate that the nothing is not merely the absence and lack of beings. If the nothing were only something indifferently negative, how could we understand, for example, horror and terror before the nothing, annihilation? Terror before the nothing. In other words, as Heidegger is writing here, it's not merely formal absence. Somehow it's something you can encounter. The nothing does not first need beings and a being in order to presence. 
as if it would presence only if beings were eliminated in advance. Like you can only get to the nothing if first you have something in negated. Heidegger's saying, no, it's not like that. There is given the nothing in spite of the fact that beings are. the no- It's kind of like, uh, think about chaos. You can think about chaos as the collapse of order. And in that case, chaos depends upon a precedent order because its meaning is the collapse of that order. Likewise, you could think of nothing as the negation of beings and therefore make it depend on the precedent presence of beings. Heidegger is saying, no, the nothing is always there. Chaos is always there. I add chaos to help you understand the point. The nothing is not the result of such an elimination of beings. There is given the nothing in spite of the fact that beings are, and perhaps it is one of the greatest of human errors to believe oneself always secure before the nothing, so long as beings can be encountered and dealt with and retained. Okay, the man in the street, the man in the marketplace, the man of uh, mechanical calculation who wants to secure beings and believes that he can therefore keep the nothing at bay. Perhaps the predominance of this error is a main reason for blindness vis-a-vis the nothing, which cannot affect beings, and least of all when beings become more and more existent. Perhaps the belief that the nothing is just nothing, like not something you can encounter, not something of its own kind of weightiness, is also the main support for a popular piece of intelligence, namely every reflection upon the nothing leads to nothingness and engenders the legitimate trust in beings. Now you could be thinking, Heidegger is here verging on a reflection about nihilism, because if he's talking about the nothing, the presence of the nothing, the meaning, the fact that we can confront it, the horror and terror in doing so, the errors that we have around it, maybe he's giving us something like an account from the inside of the possibility of of, uh, nihilism. Let's see. If, however, the nothing is obviously not a being, we cannot at all say that it is. Nevertheless, there is given the nothing. You It's there, you can encounter it, you can uh, bring it to bear. We ask again, what does there is given mean here, Eskipt? What is given is, yet somehow, uh, something. But the nothing is not something, just nothing. Here we easily fall into the danger, as I'm sure all of you sense, of playing with words, Heidegger writes. People make use of uh, the justifiable indication of this danger in order to banish all thought about the nothing as fatal. So if people who didn't have an ear for Heidegger happened to tune into our live stream here and they heard us talking about the nothing and whether it is and what it is, it's a, look at these fools who have uh, tricked themselves with the stumbling over language, basically. And those people would use the justifiable threat of getting trapped in word games in order to banish all thought about the nothing. And Heidegger says, don't do that. The danger is no less that because we seem to be merely playing around with words, we take the nothing too lightly. I think this is the real danger. And fail to recognize that uh, Eskipt there is given the nothing. If this should be the case, we would indeed have to say that the nothing is. And non-being is, as you can read about in Plato's Sophist and encounter that thought really radically. But if we say this, we make the nothing into a being and twist it into the opposite of itself. Or else the is we use when we say the nothing is means something other than what we say uh, when we say beings are. Perhaps we merely cling obstinately to an untested everyday assumption when we insist that the is is used in the same sense in the propositions being are and the nothing is. 
a more penetrating reflection might make us suddenly realize that the nothing does not need beings in order to be the nothing as a result of their elimination. And here Heidegger writes in an italicized phrase, the nothing does not need beings. Certainly, however, the nothing needs being. That the nothing needs precisely being and without being must remain without essence remains strange and shocking to the ordinary understanding. Indeed, perhaps the nothing is even the same as being. For the uniqueness of being can never be endangered by the nothing, because the nothing is not something other than being, but this itself. So Heidegger has brought together being and nothing in this reflection. Does not what we said about being also hold for the nothing, that it is unique and incomparable, unlike beings? The incontrovertible incomparability of the nothing is evidence that its essence belongs to being and confirms being's uh, uniqueness. I'm glad to see that people in the chat finally understand nothing. I'm glad that I could do my part. That the nothing is the same as being, that the nothing is related in its essence to being, if not essentially one with it, we can also surmise from what has been said about being. Heidegger continues, if you remember the previous reflection, being is the emptiest is not the nothing, sorry, is the nothing not the emptiest emptiness? So if being is empty, being is nothing. The nothing also shares uniqueness with being in this respect. So these two are brought together in this strange and maybe unsettling way. Hence, we discern from our consideration so far, now reading an italicized phrase, being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus, being is the most common of all and at the same time unique. What we say about being in such propositions here and in what follows cannot count as the sufficiently presented and demonstrated truth about being. Certainly, however, we take these propositions as guide words for the reflection upon being. Guide words for reflection. Okay, this is supposed to stimulate us to think. Guide words for the reflection upon being, which we also think whenever and however we think back in remembering to the ancient saying, Meleto to pen. So that was the end of that section, which just to remind you was um, being is the most common and at the same time unique. Previously, we had being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus. And next on the list is the following being is the most intelligible and at the same time concealment intelligible and unintelligible. Well, but let me pause for a moment because it's a lot of uh, reading and talking. Let me just pause for a moment. Nice to be with all of you. Good to quote unquote see you uh, in the chat and um, feel free to take a moment here if you'd like to. Uh, Eurasian heathen, nice to see you. Casey, Charles, good to, good to be with everybody. The Can Opener podcast. Glad you're enjoying the lectures. I just felt like we might as well keep going in the book. So I didn't schedule this. I just popped on pretty much uh, spontaneously. And we're going to keep going for a, a while longer. Uh, okay. Let me see. I want to see something here. Hmm. Okay, whatever. I don't have it on screen, so I'm just going to say, if you haven't before, please visit millermanschool.com and uh, also like this video and subscribe to the channel if you wish. Being is the most intelligible and at the same time concealment. Let's continue on with Heidegger's guide words for the reflection upon being. 
Shall we? Yeah. The very preliminary discussions of being in respect to the is in a proposition have already taught us that we understand the is and being everywhere and immediately. Remember, you know that, right? The weather is fine. The door is open. The day is young. For this, we do not need any special experiences and ratiocinations. You don't have to have gone to philosophy 101 in order to see that you talk about beings that we are, they are, etc. For this, we do not need any special experiences and ratiocinations. The intelligibility of the is in a proposition remains for us so familiar and certain in advance that at first we pay no special attention to it at all, as you can all confirm for yourselves. In addition, where we actually concern ourselves with the explanation of beings and must halt before an unintelligible being, where our, ex where our investigations among beings find their limit, even there the unexplained being remains for us embedded within a circuit of the intelligible. Most of the people, most of the time, operate as though when we talk about being, it's intelligible. This is evidenced for the most part in that we arrange the unintelligible being immediately within the intelligible and most often in an already familiar fashion. And now he's going to give us an explanation, an example. When, for instance, in respect to a domain of beings, for example, nature, okay, that domain of beings or realm of beings that we call nature, when in respect to a domain of beings, the confidence prevails that what is hitherto unexplained and unexplainable will yet be explained with time and in the course of human progress, Behind this confidence already stands the procedure that assumes the intelligibility of being and beings. In other words, there's something we don't understand right now, but we're confident that we will understand it because at the outset, we have posited that beings as such are intelligible. There's not going to be anything inherently and forever mysterious. In principle, given the time and given the development of technological procedures and uh, you know mechanical wherewithal and instruments that are finely tuned enough, we could solve every problem. We could answer every question. That's a, that is a confidence that is here for Heidegger uh, unwarranted, but it's interesting that it's assumed at the outset. So in our time, we can give an especially impressive example of the limitless power of confidence in respect to the intelligibility of beings. And here he says, see the article by Pascal Jordan, uh, of such and such a kind. This article is a revealing example of the inner decadence of today's quote-unquote science. So he's referring to an essay that we'll leave uh, off to the side for now. In the realm of atomic processes, modern atomic and quantum physics have discovered events where the discharges observable in this realm are not, excuse me, uh, where the discharges observable in this realm as a statistical average do conform to certain rules yet in particular are not foreseeable. What is unforeseeable, i.e. what cannot be computed in advance from within the purview of physical calculation, shows itself each time as something new and cannot be explained by something else. Whatever cannot be explained as a consequence of an antecedent other, as antecedent lacks a cause, in the field of atomic physics one says the law of causality is invalid, this invalidity of the law of causality one believes is established in a purely physical way by research. However, one does not rest content with this allegedly enormous discovery, which furthermore serves to refute Kant and all previous philosophy. So Heidegger is talking here about the unwarranted confidence of the modern scientists who think that they have breakthrough insight into the nature of the whole, which for Heidegger really only a genuine philosophy does. 
One applies the statement of the invalidity of the causal law in the atomic realm immediately to the quote-unquote positive realm. When something is uncaused by something else and is thus new originating from itself, it is then spontaneous and if spontaneous free. One therefore speaks of the peculiar freedom of action belonging to the microphysical structure. In other words, here Heidegger is looking at the discourse of some contemporary atomic scientists who use the language of freedom in a completely unwarranted uh, way. The discharge of atomic processes is to be sure not peculiar, Heidegger writes. Only the physics is peculiar, which makes a thoughtless fool of itself with such assertions and does not anticipate how much it must betray its essential superficiality, the result of which is that it cannot decide anything for or against causality. The issue of causality, of cause, is one whose proper, um, the proper way to understand an issue like cause is not in the lab with your scientific instruments, but through something like what Kant accomplished in the Critique of Pure Reason. So again, Heidegger's saying here, the scientists are uh, thoughtless fools who have elevated themselves above all philosophy. Totally without warrant. But with that, one might think physics has secured a domain for physical research in which the living and the spiritual and everything characterized by freedom fit in perfectly. You can give atomic explanation for spiritual experiences and for the freedom of the will. Thus opens the promising vista that one day human freedom can also be proven by natural science to be a natural scientific fact. I am not relating fictional stories. Heidegger finds this so outrageous that you won't even believe there are scientists who believe you can give a natural scientific explanation of human freedom. I'm not relating fictional stories nor reporting the fancies of a half-educated half dreamer who patches together a worldview from books he's arbitrarily picked up. I'm reporting the scientific conviction of today's physicists, who as researchers place the exactness of thought above everything, whose work is already confirmed by unforeseen technical success and presumably will continue to be confirmed in ways none of us anticipate. What is Heidegger talking about for those of you who aren't following along so closely? Scientists who believe that in principle, everything that is, is intelligible according to the exact procedures of modern technical science. That means human freedom will be given a laboratory-like explanation. Okay, the intelligibility of beings as disclosed by the methods of modern science. Heidegger is showing us examples that there is this assumed total intelligibility of everything that is. And that is thoughtless because it hasn't thought through the intelligibility together with the concealment, as we'll see in a moment. However, Heidegger writes here, because mere success is never proof of truth, but is always the consequence of a grounding principle whose truth must first be questioned and which can never be decided by the continually dependent result. Because of that, the success of today's quote-unquote science is no argument for its truth and is not something that could keep us from asking a question. So science may produce results, but if it's operating on the basis of an axiom, a hypothesis, a foundation, or a ground, that it hasn't itself examined, reflected on, or questioned, then there's always this possibility to go further. What is happening here, Heidegger asks? What commonly occurs to one in representing the atomic realm, and what is taken as the fundamental determination of the being of the physical realm, is held to be the intelligible per se. Okay, the intelligible. And one arranges under it everything else. One speaks without thinking of actions and freedom of action in relation to atoms, and believes, therefore, one has penetrated into the, do into the domain of the organic. One already dreams of a quantum biology, 
grounded by quantum physics, in quotation marks. How unquestioned these opinions of the researchers are is shown most clearly in what they believe themselves, in that they believe themselves far superior to the so-called materialists with this type of research and approach. In contrast with the materialists, one grants validity to quote-unquote freedom. However, one does not see, okay, Heidegger wants to show us what they don't see, one does not see that one equates freedom with physical unpredictability and therefore physically pre-interprets everything human. If you define freedom as physical unpredictability and you're talking about human freedom, you've already set the goalposts, you've already laid down the law that you're going to um, pre-interpret everything human in terms of physicality, which clearly is going to keep you from the realm of questioning that Heidegger is engaged in here. Above all, one does not see that a privation lies in the determination of the unpredictable, that which can't be predicted, uh, and that this cannot be without the positivity of predictability, that means of causality. Causality is not overcome. Hold on, let me finish this and then we'll comment as need be. On the contrary, it's confirmed to the utmost, only transformed, and strictly speaking, ascertainable in the usual way. Uh, let me remind you here. Heidegger, just to set us in the context, because this is getting into the weeds a bit, I'm sure for some of you, we saw being is the most common and also unique. Being is the emptiest and also a surplus or overabundance. Now we're dealing with being is intelligible and also concealment. And he's treating the view that all being can be brought under intelligibility, hence that it's ha it has left out the concealment aspect of being. And his example of an interpretation of being as totally intelligible is science with its methods and procedures, which believes that in principle, it can understand everything, including human things, and that no problem can't be solved. You maybe can think through parallels in AI and machine learning and whatever else today's equivalents are, possibly also in the quantum fields as Heidegger is discussing them here. One finds this procedure to be in order, for one is of the opinion that naturally everyone knows off the street, so to speak, what freedom and spirit and such things are, for one has and is these things oneself every day. Whereas naturally, for example, an understanding of the mathematics of wave mechanics is accessible to only a very few mortals and requires a Herculean effort and a corresponding technical preparation. So most people are okay with the fact that physicists pine about the quantum nature of human freedom because we believe we know what freedom is, but we believe that only experts know about uh, the mathematics and mechanics of uh, the quantum world. But why should a physicist, who is also a human being, not know at the same time what is essential to human freedom and everything else that concerns man and what can be discovered about it? Why shouldn't everyone be informed about all this and about the being of beings in general? Isn't it common knowledge somehow? This attitude of the sciences and these claims that we constantly encounter everywhere in modified forms state unequivocally for us that the being of beings is the most intelligible thing of all. Remember, this is what Heidegger's the point that he's getting us to consider. The belief that being, the being of beings, is intelligible to everybody, okay? To the man on the street as he put it. We do not remember ever really having learned what being is and means. Maybe you remember when you learned your ABCs. Maybe you remember when you learned calculus or how to play chess, but you don't necessarily remember having learned what being is and means. To the contrary, we must indeed strive step by step for the cognizance of and acquaintance with particular beings. Whence stems as well the strange state of affairs wherein we require the highest exactitude for the study of beings 
and above all of nature, quote unquote, and to that end set into motion gigantic apparatuses. Whereas for the determination of being, any arbitrary and approximate notion may and does suffice. Okay, take a realm of beings, roughly stated, the cosmos, astronomy. Not every man on the street knows everything there is to know about astronomy. Take another realm of beings, plants. Not every man on the street knows everything there is to know about plant uh, microbiology and botany and all of that, soil conditions. So in the study of beings, it seems like you need some sort of special expertise. And you have gigantic apparatuses, research institutions, and everything else in order to understand each of those little realms of beings. But when it comes to being, it seems like anybody can just spout off about it because in principle we all know about it. That science, for example, must put into operation complicated investigations in order to historiologically secure a historical fact is understandable. Okay. Did such and such a king live in such and such an area? Let's go do an archaeological dig. A lot of work to try to investigate a historical fact. But it is no less understandable that any vague notions, wherever they may come from, are sufficient for judgments to be made and agreement to be found about the fundamental appearances of history, about human freedom, about the essence of power, about art, and about poetry. Once again, people spout off as though they know these things. Respect for facts and for the exact determinations of beings must naturally be required. If, however, what is essential to beings, therefore to being, is abandoned to the claims of arbitrary notions, there's no occasion for reservations. All of this and many similar things in human comportment speak for the fact that being as distinguished from beings is the most intelligible. Again, that's what Heidegger wants us to see. If we didn't already believe that being was the most intelligible, then we would have set up, in this context, okay, research apparatuses for inquiry into being and not just into botany and astronomy and physics. But we don't. We treat it as so common that you never even had to learn it in order to know it. Okay? The intelligibility of being has, we don't know how and when, simply come our way. Think about hasn't it? You talk, you say, this is, those are, we were, they will be. You never had to learn what you mean by being. You had to learn something, but that wasn't one of the things. And yet, however, therefore, Heidegger continues, when we are supposed to say expressly what we understand by such most intelligible being, and that means what we think with the word being, and that means what we grasp being as, then we are suddenly at a loss. Then we're kind of like in the situation of the people that Socrates talked to who thought they knew something until they were questioned about it. Of course, he was killed for doing that, but we're in that situation. When we're asked about it, when we're supposed to say what we think we know, we're suddenly at a loss. Suddenly, it is shown to us that we not only have no concept for this most intelligible for being, we also do not see how we are still supposed to grasp something here with respect to being. Within beings, the task and the way out remain for us to trace the given being back to another being. Okay, this caused that, this is related to that. If not for this, then there wouldn't be that. Okay, to trace the given being back to another being that we take to be clearer and more familiar, a kind of causal explanation. And through this reduction to explain it, what caused this behavior? Oh, these genes in that context. And to consent, 
to content ourselves with such an explanation. However, where it is a where it is a matter of grasping being, the way out by means of a being is denied to us if we earnestly stick to the question. You can't follow the same procedure. You don't have access to the same explanatory resources when talking about being as you have when talking about beings. My very simple prosaic example, you can't answer a math question with a telescope. You need a certain type of approach to it. Well, you can't answer the question about the meaning of being using the same methods that you use in dealing with beings. So we have a problem. Okay. Uh, where it is a where it is a matter of grasping being, the way out by means of a being is denied to us if we earnestly stick to the question. You can't use a telescope. You can't even use a calculator. For every being is as such already determined by being and lays claim to this for itself. Next to any one being are to be sure always various other beings, right? Cut pen, paper, computer, TV, etc. But besides being, there is given at most the nothing. So the pen comes together with the paper, the cup, the table, the TV. But being as such is so unique that if it comes together with anything, only with nothing. However, the nothing is indeterminate per se. How should we offer something in terms of which, how should it offer something in terms of which we grasp being? If the only thing that we get together with being is nothing, well, good luck telescoping or calculating that. This way as well leads to no essential determination of being. Being thus denies itself, okay? Being thus denies itself every concept and every determination and illumination and does so in every respect and for every attempt at an explanation. So we went from something that is apparently super intelligible, so much so that everybody knows it even without having to have learned it. Instead, now we have that being simply withholds itself from any grasping on the basis of beings. If we say that being simply withholds itself, then yet again, we are saying something about being, namely that it withholds itself. This essence belongs to being, to withhold itself from explanation on the basis of beings. You can say something about being. Part of what's essential to being is that it withholds itself from explanation on the basis of beings. Withholding itself, it removes itself from determinacy, from manifestness. Withdrawing from manifestness, it conceals itself. Self-concealment belongs to being. This is a crucial point in Heidegger, in all of Heidegger. Self-concealment belongs to being. If we wish to acknowledge this, then we must say, being itself is concealment. Therefore, we must adhere to the following, and now he's going to summarize, I mean, he's going to restate the three uh, opposites that he's getting us to reflect on as guide words for a reflection on being. So being is the emptiest and at the same time a surplus. Being is the most common of all and at the same time uniqueness. Being is the most intelligible and at the same time concealment. And in the next numbered paragraph, he moves to being as the most worn out and at the same time the origin, like the oldest and the newest, the most played and the most uh, brand new, okay? The most worn out and at the same time the origin. Now, I don't know if I'm going to read this because 15 minutes in, I'm getting kind of tired. Charles, Christopher, good to see you. Everybody, thanks for being here. I hope you're enjoying this. I feel like we fully committed to basic concepts. I never planned to do the whole book, but here we are. Uh, Hunter, nice to see you. Yes, Darren Beatty is doing good work over at Revolver. In particular, has written a dissertation on 
Heidegger and for sure has an interest in Plato and philosophy and things like that. So if you guys don't know Darren Beatty, that could be interesting for you. Casey uh, seems to be afraid of science infringing on philosophy. It's not fear. Heidegger doesn't have a fear about science infringing on philosophy. Heidegger is trying to show how the foundations of science have blocked access to a certain realm of questioning. That's the problem. How do we get to the realm that science has paved over? Well, we have to break the concrete. Okay, maybe chat AI can further philosophy because it dissolved 40, 50 years ago. Don't know about that. Feel free to elaborate. Um, okay, well, I don't know what we should do. Should we keep going? Let me just see here. How far are we from Heidegger's own recapitulation? So we have, just to give you a sense of where he's going next, being is the most worn out and at the same time the origin. Being is the most reliable and at the same time the non-ground. Being is the most said and at the same time a keeping silent. Being is the most forgotten and at the same time a remembrance. Being is the most constraining and at the same time liberation. And then he has a unifying reflection upon being in the sequence of guide words. And then his re recapitulation, which it does always add something, but my oh my, let's see. I'm enjoying this. We're almost an hour in. <laughs> All right, let's do at least a little bit more. I can't promise you that we'll do the whole section, but let's do a, a little bit more. If we now consider that being conceals itself, indeed that self-concealment belongs to being's essence, it might seem once again as if being remains completely and necessarily withdrawn from us. Okay, if being conceals itself, does that mean it's always forever withdrawn from us? It's totally inaccessible. But again, it can only seem so, for we lay claim to being everywhere, as we've seen and as you can confirm, wherever and whenever we experience beings, deal with them and interrogate them, or merely leave them alone. We need being because we need it in all relations to beings. In this constant and multiple use, being is in a certain way expended. So remember what we're talking about here being worn out and the origin. Like the most talked, the most used up and nevertheless, you know, pristine in some sense, okay, the origin, the inceptual. So we cannot say that being is used up in this expenditure. Being remains constantly available to us. Would we wish to maintain, however, that this use of being which we constantly rely upon leaves being so untouched? Let's put it this way. My cup is, my pen is, my papers, my computer is, my camera is. Every time I say is, maybe it's like I'm taking a, you know, taking a step on the soil, I'm wearing down the grass, I'm beating down a path, you know, I'm wearing it out. I'm wearing out being in my constant encounters with it, maybe. But flip side of that, is not being at least consumed in use? Does not the indifference of the is which occurs in all saying attest to the wornness of what we thus name? Being is certainly not grasped, but it is nevertheless worn out and thus also empty and common. Why do we think that being is the most common and the most empty? Because it's worn out. Being stands everywhere and at each moment in our understanding as what is most self-understood. It is thus the most worn out coin with which we constantly pay for every relation to beings, without which payment, no relation to beings as beings would be allotted to us. Being the most worn out and the most indifferent, uh, and yet we do not throw the is away, we also never become weary of the being of beings. Even when one might sometimes wish oneself no longer to be, 
Boredom or ennui pertains only to oneself as this existing human being, but not to being. Even in that most extreme satiety that secretly remains a wishing and wishes there might be the nothing instead of beings, even there being remains the only thing called upon that resists expenditure and consumption. Let me just repeat here. Uh, we're never totally and utterly worn out with being. Okay, in a nutshell. For even when we are nihilists in the sense that we want to reject being, all being, as he puts it here, uh, for also where we expect that it would be preferable for the nothing to be, the last saving grasp is aimed at the most worn out at being. So even when you want to reject everything, you want nothing to be. So it's all it's worn out and yet always there. Therefore, being can never become worn out to the point of complete exhaustion. Another way of saying it, being always remains. It's never worn out to the point of complete exhaustion and disparagement. On the contrary, in the extremity of the desired annihilation of all beings, and precisely here, being must appear. It appears here as something unprecedented and untouched, from out of which stem all beings and even their possible annihilation. Being first lets every being be as such. That means to spring loose in a way, to be a being, and as such to be itself. Being lets every being as such originate. Being is the origin. That was a short section. Okay, give me a second here. Give me a second. Uh, I can't address all the comments, although I'm glad to see people commenting. Hopefully you're getting something out of this. I don't know whether you're just trying to get on Heidegger's wavelength, in which case maybe something here will click and help that fall into place. Maybe this particular book you've wanted to study or you've wanted to read. Uh, hopefully something, as I say, is clicking. Let me just look. I'm going to do, I think, one more little section here. We'll follow along Heidegger's reflection, and then uh, we'll have to stop and leave this division, the rest of this division, for another time. Being is the most reliable and, at the same time, non-ground. Whenever, whichever way and to whatever extent beings become questionable and uncertain to us, we do not doubt being itself. Whether this or that being is, whether this being is so or that being is otherwise, may remain undecided. Like if I show you a, a jar and I say there's something in it, you don't know what, how many marbles, okay? Maybe this, maybe that could be undecided. And indeed, it could be undecidable in specific cases. Through all of the wavering uncertainty of beings, being, by contrast, offers reliability. For how could we doubt beings in whatever respect if we could not rely in the first place upon what is called being? Being is the most reliable and so unconditionally reliable that in all spheres of our comportment towards beings, we do not ever become clear as to the trust we place everywhere upon it. Nevertheless, if we ever wanted to ground our plans and recourses among beings, our using and shaping of them, immediately upon being, if we wanted to assess the reliability of the everyday according to how being is grounded in its essence there, I'll explain this in a minute, let's just read it first, and how this essence is familiar to us, then we must just as soon experience that none of our intentions and attitudes can be built directly upon being. Being otherwise constantly used and called upon offers us no foundation and no ground upon which we can immediately place whatever we erect, undertake, and bring about every day. Uh, being thus appears as the groundless, as something that continually gives way, offers no support, and denies every ground and basis. Being is the refusal of every expectation that it could serve as a ground. 
In part, you see that also from the concealment. That which withdraws itself can't be a foundation for you. Imagine a foundation that withdraws. What's going to happen to what you built on that foundation? So on one hand, the intelligibility seems to provide this constancy and reliability. But on the other hand, the withdrawal and the concealment seems to undo that and undermine it like pulling a rug out from under your feet. Okay? So the groundless somehow ground. Okay? The reliable but, uh, as he puts it, non-ground. Okay? So being is the most reliable and at the same time the non-ground. I'm going to keep going because that one was short and the next one's interesting. Let's continue. Being is the most said and at the same time a keeping silent. Because we first depend upon being insofar as we're given over to beings and are released into beings, this dependence constantly and everywhere is put into word. I always want to remind you, this isn't just some sort of abstract theorizing. You speak, you do, and you're spoken to. And when you speak and are spoken to, just notice the saturation of the language of being in your speaking. Today is Friday. It's snowing outside. Okay? This live stream is almost reaching one hour. Saturated. Everything. Probably the most used word, the most ever-present part of your speaking is being. Okay? So, uh, this not only in the pervasive and immeasurably frequent use of explicit of its explicit names, such as is and are and was and shall be and has been, in each tense word of language we name being. If we say it rains, we mean that rain is here and now. In addition, we name beings in every noun and adjective and thus name the being of beings along with them. I got to pause for a minute because I want to make a point. Is it obvious and trivial and banal and uninteresting that our language uses the verb to be? Well, for somebody, yes. What's the big deal? It's like a child counting his teeth or something, okay? Yeah, so you use the word being in your speaking. What's the big deal? Well, Heidegger says, stop and pay attention to the fact that being is the most said. Because if we can see that it's at the same time the most said and a keeping silent, that's strange. The strangeness is an invitation to think more into this question. To expose ourselves to the space of this question in a way that affects us. So if it strikes you as trivial, that's not necessarily so horrible. But you have to balance the triviality of the observation with what's strange about it. That's what we need Heidegger for. If we say it rains, we mean that rain is here and now. In addition, we name beings in every noun and adjective, and thus name the being of beings along with them. The war, the being that is now. It is sufficient to name a being, and we mean in a merely approximate way, yet portentous thinking, the being of this being, the fact that it is, its existence, its being in being, okay, all of these things. We name being along with it. Being is said along with every word and verbal articulation, if not named each time with its own name. Speaking says being along with, not as an addition and a supplement that could just as well have been left out, but as the pre-giving of what always first permits the naming of beings. I couldn't say cup, pen, computer, phone, camera, eyeglasses. I feel like I'm Trump doing the IQ test. 
I couldn't say those things unless they were already in being there for me. So behind all speaking is that anything is given in being in the first place. So our speaking to repeat is saturated by being, almost as the very condition of our speaking. Being is said along with every word in verbal articulation, okay? Speaking says being along with, not as an addition and a supplement, but as the pre-giving of what always first permits the naming of beings. Being is said even where we silently act, where among beings we wordlessly decide about beings and without naming them comport ourselves toward beings. So not even, not only in the saying do we speak being, but even in the comportment towards, there's an implicit, as it were, speaking of being. In the same way, even where we are left completely speechless, Heidegger writes, putting that phrase in quotation marks, we say being. Being is the most said in all saying because everything sayable is only to be said in being. And only truth and its seriousness are sayable. Heidegger adds parenthetically. Must not being, due to its multiple and constant saying, if all, in some sense, all we're ever talking about, well, no, okay, that's, that's too strong. Being is there in all our speaking. And if that's the case, must not being due to its multiple and constant saying be already so articulated and well-known that its essence lies uncovered before us in complete indeterminacy. If it's the most said, if it's that which is always there in our speaking, then maybe it's the best known, best articulated, most understood of all possible topics. But what if the most said in saying kept its essence secret? Remember, the concealment, the withdrawal, crucial. If being kept to itself in the disclosure of its essence, and this not only occasionally and incidentally, but according to its essence, then not only would concealment belong to being, as we've seen, but concealment would have a marked relation to saying and would be silence. Then being would consist in keeping its essence silent. Because being remains the most said in every word, it would be silence per se, that essential silence from out of which a word first issues and must issue in breaking this silence. From this break, and as such a break, every word would have its own constellation, and following from this, the stamp of its sound and resonance. As silence, being would also be the origin of language. If this is accurate, Heidegger continues, then we understand why an animal does not speak and no other living thing can speak. The animal does not speak because silence is impossible for it. And an animal cannot be silent because it has no relation to what can be kept silent about, i.e. to keeping silent, i.e. to concealment, i.e. to being. For speaking, if the word comes from such an origin, silence, concealment, is not some arbitrary appearance and condition that we discern in man as one capability among others, like seeing and hearing, grasping and locomotion. For language stands in an essential relation to the uniqueness of being. Being itself obliges us to the next guide word. So here we had being is the most said, 
there and all are speaking. And at the same time, it's sort of concealment or withdrawing aspect, a keeping silent. Silence as the condition of speech. Okay, the next one here is being is the most forgotten and at the same time remembrance. Let me once again just see here. Is this, uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go. It becomes clearer and clearer to us how being everywhere remains the closest in all relations to beings. And yet being is entirely passed over in favor of beings in whom all willing and knowing seeks its fulfillment. I'm going to give you an image. This is an image. It could be misleading. It surely is distorting. But maybe it'll help this click for you. Imagine you have an aquarium. In the aquarium, you have all bunch of stuff, okay? And you pour water into the aquarium. Now, everything that's in there is going to be saturated with the water. But you can't reduce the water to all of the wet things in the aquarium. Being beings. The saturation, the excess, the commonality, the uniqueness. You couldn't derive all of the water from the wet things. Okay, You see, again, image distorting, but I'm trying to give you some sort of intuitive access to this. Right, so it becomes clearer and clearer to us how being everywhere remains the closest in relation in all relations to beings. And yet being is entirely passed over in favor of beings in whom all willing and knowing seeks its fulfillment. We don't engage with being as such for the most part, but with this or that particular thing. No wonder we forget being on account of beings and their multitude. Forget it as something worthy of any consideration at all. I'll give you a quick little throwback to Plato's Republic. If you can remember the passages where he talks about the distinction between the people who love the beautiful things, beautiful cars, beautiful women, beautiful guitars, okay? Uh, and the people who love beauty itself, that which makes everything that's beautiful, beautiful. Well, the people who love the beautiful things, women, cars, guitars, and all the rest of it, it's harder for them to see the beautiful itself because they're among the many beautiful things. They can get sucked in to the realm of the particular beautiful things. So same here. We're sucked into the realm of just dealing with the things that are there, with the beings. And that being sucked into uh, dealing with beings, it turns us away from consideration, proper consideration of being as such. In other words, we forget it. So as he puts it to repeat, no wonder we forget being on account of beings and their multitude, forget it as something worthy of any consideration at all. And so far as a claim upon being is awakened, which Heidegger is trying to do in his lecture course and we're trying to do as we present it, and an inquiry about it is made, the indication immediately comes forth that being indeed counts as the most intelligible, but beyond this is not further determinable. Being is thus forgotten in respect to its question worthiness. There's nothing there to question. People who question the meaning of being are seen as hair splitters, okay, time wasters, uh, and fools. Because it seems like there's nothing to do there. Being is thus forgotten in respect to its question worthiness. And indeed so fundamentally forgotten that we even forget this forgetting. In some sense, I would say this little reflection here that I'm going to repeat for you. This is, if you get what Heidegger's saying here, that's true maybe more broadly, but here in particular, if you get what Heidegger's saying here, you can get onto his wavelength. This is, you can enter through this keyhole. 
Let me read it to you again. If you treat being as intelligible as not anything to question, then being is thus forgotten in respect to its question worthiness and indeed so fundamentally forgotten that we even forget this forgetting. So we have to see that we have forgotten the question worthiness of being. We have to reverse this forgetting, not only the forgetting of the question worthiness of being, but forgetting the forgetting, not only oblivion about what being is, but oblivion of our own oblivion, okay? Layers here of forgetting, layers of oblivion, layers of blindness. Heidegger's whole project is to bring that to our attention so that we can begin to remember. It pertains to the essence of forgetting that it forgets itself, i.e. twists itself more and more into its own vortex. Hence, we must admit being is, among all that is worthy of interrogation and consideration, the most forgotten. If we wanted to remain exclusively with this observation, being would obviously never and nowhere have to concern us. But if we concede for one moment the possibility, if we once allow the point that being per se has sunk into the still concealed nothing of forgetfulness, you see the link now. So it's forgotten. It's sunk into oblivion. It's withdrawn. It's concealed itself. It's brought itself in closer relation to that nothing. These things are related, okay? If we once allow the point that being per se has sunk into the still concealed nothing of forgetfulness, if we seriously posit the case that being has been completely stricken from our knowing, how could we then encounter the smallest and most fleetest, a fleeting being as a being? How could we ever experience ourselves as a being? So it seems like we forgot it. It seems like we forgot our forgetting. And yet if there had been no trace left, if nothing of being remained, if the oblivion was total and complete, we couldn't even encounter the world as beings. We constantly comport ourselves toward beings and are beings. We discern not only about ourselves that we are beings, but about our being that we are concerned one way or another with ourselves and how we are. Being concerns us whether it is a matter of the being that we are ourselves or those beings that we are not and never can be. Like I have a rabbit in the other room. I'm concerned about my rabbit. I care for it. I want to take care of it. I want to give it a carrot when we're doing this live stream. Okay, so beings concern us. They call, we attend to them. Okay, we're always that being that is concerned with being who thus concerned and struck finds in being what is most reliable. Being remains everywhere reliable and yet considered in respect to its rank within what is worthy of reflection, it is the most forgotten. Despite this forgottenness, however, it remains in everyday comportment, not only the reliable, but is prior to that already something that grants us awareness of beings and permits us to be beings in the midst of beings. We couldn't be there with the world. We couldn't have anything to encounter. We couldn't be there for ourselves or for others, if not for being, even though it's forgotten. Being allows us in every respect to be aware of beings and of each in its own way. Being remembers us into beings and about beings so that everything we encounter, whether experienced as present or past or future, each time first becomes and remains evident as a being through the remembrance of being. Being thus remembers essentially. Being is itself what remembers is the authentic remembrance. 
Okay, so the forgetting and the remembering, the sort of uh, bringing um, back together, bringing together. We must indeed consider that being itself is what remembers, not only something about which we remember, to which we can always return as something already familiar in the sense of Plato's anamnesis. Plato's doctrine says only how we comport ourselves toward the being of beings. No, this is complicated. I think we're going to stop very, very soon. Okay, but let's bear with it uh, a little bit further. Plato's doctrine says only how we comport ourselves toward the being of beings when we assess this comportment according to the relation in which we otherwise stand to beings. Now, however, we must perceive that being is not an object of possible remembrance for us, but is itself what authentically remembers, what allows all awareness of anything that comes into the open as being. So let me just, uh, let me just explain this super briefly. Being is not an object of our thought. We are situated within. Being is the preceding gift that makes possible all recollection in the first place. We're not objectifying, reifying, conceptualizing, or idealizing being. That's why I, I, I try to say often in all of my classes on Heidegger, millermanschool.com, and in all of these lectures that Heidegger is trying to give us a breakthrough where we're no longer standing on the firm ground of our own intellectual activity, Rather, there's a transposition of our existence or of ourselves into a clarity about the realm. It's like we want that, we want to see that we're saturated by being. We don't just have it as an object or a concept, quote unquote, in our heads. Okay, so not an object that we remember, rather something that recollects us back into itself, so to speak. Uh, okay. We have the last reflection here, which is that being is the most constraining and at the same time liberation. I once again thank all of you for being here. I hope that you are getting some value from Heidegger's basic concepts lecture. Even though being as what is emptiest and most worn out might sink from the sphere of reflection that otherwise remains and completely disappear into the indifference of forgetting in which even this indifference is annihilated. So we're, we no longer care about being and we no longer care that we don't care. Everywhere being once again constrains us. And indeed, it constrains us continually so that beings meet us and carry us away, surpass us and flatten us, burden us and uplift us. For if prior to all beings, being and only being allows each to be a being, then each being remains, however it might concern and affect us, infinitely far behind the constraint of being itself. Let me just put all that. We forgot about it. We forgot that we forgot about it. We go about our daily affairs. We interact with this and that. But the precondition of our interacting with this and that is nevertheless that it's there for us, that it's in being. So even if being seems to have withdrawn and we've forgotten about it, it's always ever present. It constrains all possible experiences for us, so to speak. No multitude of beings ever surpasses the quote-unquote force that comes from being and presences as being. Even where all beings no longer concern us, become indifferent and give themselves over to empty caprice, even there the force of being reigns. Because that which constrains surpasses everything in force, it gives way before no being and in no being, but exacts from each that as a being it remains forced into being. Okay, once again, the constraint that whatever we encounter is, and that if it is, it is as a function, so to speak, of being, so the most constraining. So that's, I think, clear to see. What about liberation? What about liberation? And yet, he says, we do not detect the force of being, but at most an impact and a pressing from the side of beings. Despite that constraint, being is 
as if it were rather not there and therefore precisely like the nothing. So look, here's my fist, here's the table. I can hit the table, tap the mic, point at the camera. I'm encountering beings and everywhere somehow behind the scenes of them, like the hand and the puppet, I'm encountering being as the constraint, being as the limit, being as the force field, so to speak, even though it's not there in the same way that the various things are. We attempt in vain to find being there and yonder. Being plays around us and through us as if inexperienceable. But this play constantly has in everything the singular univocity of the unique. For is not being that which has already placed us there, where beings as such are differentiated from one another? Is not being that which opens that which first unlocks the openness of it there, in which the possibility is first granted that beings are differentiated from being, that beings and being are set apart from each other? Uh, we're almost done, okay? I know I'm rushing a little bit at the end here. I do want to get us through this and then stop. So being first sets being and beings apart. And get this, this is crucial. Again, this is giving you the, dif the difference between the conceptual, merely, ideational, merely, the mental, merely, and what Heidegger's talking about. Listen, being first sets being and beings apart and places us into this apartness and into the free. Placement into this setting apart of being and beings is liberation into belongingness to being. It's like we could be in the closed world of just beings, but our freedom consists in the fact that we're placed between, we're placed in this distinction between being and beings. And because he's already brought being and nothing close together, that situation that we have between in this in-between of beings and being slash nothing is the condition of our freedom. If we were just in the realm of beings, we wouldn't have that. This liberation liberates so that we are free before beings and in their midst, free toward beings, free from them, free for them, and thus we have the possibility to be ourselves. Placement into being is liberation into freedom. This liberation alone is the essence of freedom. Uh, I'm going to think I'm going to stop here, and you should consider, Heidegger has just said something to you about the relationship between our admittedly dense reflections about being and beings, and something that we also regard as, I think, familiar, the notion of our freedom, and you can see if you'd like, what does what Heidegger just said about freedom, how is it like or unlike other more uh, customary, ordinary, and everyday accounts of what it means to be free? And has Heidegger given us a more penetrating insight into the nature of our freedom? So in a minute, we're going to be at Heidegger's own recapitulation, which in this particular video, despite the fact that he says some interesting things there, I'm not going to cover. But let's at least just read this very last section a uh, unifying reflection upon being in the sequence of guide words. It's going to summarize what we've seen so far and thread it all together for us. And just to remind you, we're reading Heidegger's basic concepts. I've done a video on the introduction, a video on the first division, and today we were discussing the second division, guide words for reflection upon being. And here's what Heidegger says in his unifying reflection upon being in the sequence of guide words. 
If we pull together the previously attempted reflection upon being in the sequence of guide words, we will become attentive and more collected for what at first might appear only like an empty sound. Now he's going to restate them all. Being is the emptiest and the most common of all. Being is the most intelligible and the most worn out. Being is the most reliable and the most said. Being is the most forgotten and the most constraining. At the same time, however, being is a surplus and a uniqueness, a concealment and an origin, the non-ground and a keeping silent, a remembrance and liberation. The is reveals itself as something that apparently only escapes from us, as something said, as something that in truth holds us in its essence, and yes, even in its non-essence. In other words, it's not just a word we say. I once again want to insist that you get this point. It's not just a word we say. It's the condition of our being. It's the condition of our speaking. We're situated within it. In my Heidegger lectures, I have a formulation. I'm not going to say it here because I'm afraid it'll be misleading, okay? It is not something that escapes from us as something said. Rather, it's something that in truth holds us in its essence and in its non-essence because of the relatedness of being and nothing. Are we simply asserting and arranging arbitrary determinations of being here and using the no less simple device of opposition, common, unique, intelligible, concealed, to multiply each one by its opposite? A decision regarding this plausible opinion must be postponed. Before that, we must get beyond the poverty in which common opinion and a 2,000-year-old metaphysical thinking as well present being. We're fighting against a lot of sedimented common opinion and believing we know better in order to make a breakthrough into the mysteriousness of being. We only want to experience this, that when we follow the saying, Meleta Topan, and consider beings as a whole, we stand immediately in the difference between beings and being, that herewith being announces itself as essential fullness, assuming that we have, assuming that we only begin to think being itself. And now he asks this question, but have we now in fact thought being itself? Which transitions into his recapitulation and into the third division, which I'm going to cover in a separate live stream, probably on another day, being and man. All right. Well, I've enjoyed spending time together. I hope you're getting something out of this book. Probably the next book I do a kind of public live exposition of will be simpler. Uh, I don't think this is complicated in the sense that it requires a lot of philosophical background. I think it's complicated in the sense that you have to be willing to stick through what can seem like a repetitive uh, deep dive into, again, it's, it's, the task here is to get onto Heidegger's wavelength. Something in you has to click, like in the allegory of Plato's cave, a turning around of the soul. There's going to be some shift or some moment where, boom, you find yourself implicated in the division between being and beings so that it's no longer a concept. It's now like, ah, you've got it in your gut, so to speak. But okay, what we can do is just do our best to uh, motivate that type of insight and understanding. So thank you for spending your time here. Uh, let me just pop over into the chat for a second. I would like to ask you if you wouldn't mind uh, liking the video, sharing, subscribing if you wish. And I just want to tell you once more that I offer courses for sale at millermanschool.com, but I try to supplement them with free expositions like this one. I also have a book on Heidegger, book on Dugan, but never mind all of that. I just put it in. This is really what we're doing is talking about 
Heidegger's lecture course on basic concepts. So thanks everybody for being here. Be well, take care, and see you in the next video.